0: Any time of transition, uh, there's a lot of thought that goes into it. Uh, for me, whenever any changes happen in my life, when, when there's a big move, a big change in any way, it makes me start to rethink things, uh, to look at my life and think about what's what. What are we really maybe nailing in our life right now, and where do we have holes in our life? You know, I, I think about my new routine with with this transition. I I've thought about a lot. Uh, about the change of pace, uh, about more office hours, uh, less out when, when I need to prepare a lesson. Uh, but also, how, how am I going to work that? Because that's, that's one of my passions is being outside, being with people and meeting people and being in the community. So how are, how are you going to balance those things and, and how am I going to change my morning schedule? And I, I like to work out. And, and so how, how am I going to work these things and uh, how am I going to make sure that my study life for me is there, not just if I'm preparing for all these lessons for a church, uh, how, how am I not going to just do that? How am I going to make sure that I'm spiritually nourished at the same time? We reevaluate, uh, we rethink a lot of things, I hope, during times of transition. And that's what I want to challenge you to do, challenge us to do this morning, is to maybe take a few minutes and just rethink some things. Um, just to look at things and to evaluate, because it's honestly a biblical concept and it's really healthy. It's really healthy to be able to look at our lives, uh, to look at what we do, and say, hey, what are we really nailing right now, and what do we have some big holes in our lives right now as a church? Uh, the first thing I want you to think about is rethinking your engagement. Rethinking your engagement. I'm not talking about putting a ring on it. Uh, I'm talking about your engagement with people. Uh, who are you trying to gauge? Who are you trying to reach? Um, Is the goal at West 7th, this is a real question, this is something for you to think about, and you're going to dig deeper in your home Bible studies tonight, but is the goal as a church here at West 7th to reach unchurched people, uh, to people people who don't have Jesus, people who don't have a relationship with God at all, or is it to really honestly reach church people, uh, reach people who are really comfortable and have a relationship already, and you're almost like you're recruiting new talent into this church family. See, because I, I was thinking about this the other day, and when I'm in this building, uh, I'm really comfortable. I am. I, I, when, I, when I walk into this church building, I thought about it the other day when we had the area wide at Graymere. You all know that's where I grew up. Uh, it's where I spent so much of my childhood. And when I walk in that building, there's a comfort there. When I walk in West 7th, there's a comfort there. When I walk in Peachtree City where I worked before, there's a comfort there. I walk in and I see people that look like me, that dress like me, that act like me, that walk, talk and and, and live like me, and I see pews that I'm comfortable with. I, I see everything that makes me really comfortable. And so there will never be a time when I come back to visit that I'm not comfortable walking in these doors. The way everything looks, the way everything is, the way everybody is. But the flip side of that, and if we're really honest with ourselves, is that with the way things are right now, there's some people who will never be comfortable walking through these doors. If your goal is to reach unchurched people, we think in church, mind, if you grew up in church and you grew up coming, like we walk into places like this and we're so comfortable and it makes perfect sense the way everything functions to us, but to be able to be a church that changes and starts thinking of people outside of the church, instead of just recruiting people that already maybe go to church that maybe know Jesus. You've got to start thinking, what would I think if I walked in this building and I had never been to church before? What would I think if I walked in this building and I never knew Jesus at all? Would there be this comfort? Would be this desire for a relationship? Or would you honestly go in and say, hey, this isn't for me? You know, there's two questions asked when you walk in. Is it my people or are they not my people? And when people are choosing where they're going to go in life, that's the question we ask every time. We walk into a new job, we walk into a new New club, anything we join, we think, is this a place that's for me or not for me? And is West 7th going to be a place that honestly is for people, churched and unchurched? This isn't like abandoning the church people. This isn't saying, hey, hey, we don't want to get people in here that are excited about Jesus already, that have a relationship, they're ready to go. But it has to be, it has to be the kind of place that works on both sides of it. That is constantly thinking about people who don't know Jesus. Um uh, Brandy talked a couple of weeks ago about, about the walls, and it's funny, as he, as he was talking about that, and he talked about the walls that maybe kept the woman at the well out, if you remember, you know, the walls of her sin, and uh, race, and gender, and a feeling of worthlessness, and those are all things that are so true, these walls that maybe she put up in her life, or maybe culture put up in her life, and maybe that still happens today, but as I was sitting here, I was looking around, and I saw these walls, and I, you know, we when when reevaluating all this to go to two services or or to stay together you know that was the the thought of hey hey do we want to knock out a wall you know do we, do we want to knock out a wall we could go that way there there's some open air you know maybe add 100 seats and and have a temporary fix it, it was definitely the right decision to do it this way I, that's not where where I'm going with it but I was looking at these walls and what we came to was That These walls, they're, they're not the kind of walls you can just easily knock out and have a contractor come in and fix. These are old walls. They've been here forever. They're not the kind of walls we build today. So you would have to do so much. It would be so expensive to be able to knock down those walls. And I think that's the problem when it comes to reaching our community, is that it's honestly going to be so expensive it's going to cost us a lot, and it's going to be so hard because these walls that we surround ourselves with, they're comfortable. I mean, they, they just are. Like I, For me, and this isn't for you, this is for me, for Bo, these walls are comfortable. Like I said, it's what I've known since I was a little kid. So i walk in, and this style is comfortable. This makes sense to me. It feels good. This is my kind of lesson. This is my kind of life. These are my kind of people. It costs something to get a little bit uncomfortable. But it's worth so much. It's worth so much more. Let's look at Luke chapter 7. Uh, Luke chapter 7. We have to rethink uh, how we treat people, how, how we truly, genuinely treat people. Luke chapter 7, and we have Jesus' interaction with Simon in, in verse 38. Luke 7 and verse 38. If you'll read with me, it says, or verse th- starting in verse 36, actually. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing beside him, behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who, had set, who, who and what sort of woman this is who was touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered and said, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. So you have a few things that I think we can take. And when it comes to figuring out, rethinking, looking at what are we doing? Like what are we really doing to reach out to the world? What are we doing to reach out to people who don't know Jesus? Because that should be the mission of the church. We come together and yes, we're, we're built up when we're together and we learn and we grow and we get to worship God when we're here. But it should also be the plan to figure out how are we going to reach the lost and have this passion that consumes us to reach the lost. And one thing I want you to get is, is what when we can evaluate whether we're starting to really hit it here is what happens right here with Jesus. It starts off and it says, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house brought in an alabaster jar. When Jesus is present in the house, sinners are going to be too. I mean, we're, we're all sinners, so, so we get that. We're, we're all sinners. Everybody, yes, brother, there are about 200 plus sinners in the house today. But no, what we mean is, is this is a culture that's similar to ours today. Sometimes we're comfortable with people that are a lot like us, and the Pharisees definitely were. And, and this woman would not have been comfortable coming to Simon's house, I guarantee. She would have thought this is a place where I am not welcome. This is a place that's going to be embarrassing. This is a place where I'll get ridiculed, where maybe I'll get kicked out onto the streets. But when she saw Jesus was there, she couldn't help but follow. And so if you want to reevaluate whether you're nailing it, whether this is an area that's hitting right, is that when Jesus is present in the house, present in the house, so will sinners be. They're going to follow. They're going to come also. And when sinners are in the house, Pharisees are going to hate it. And that's the truth. This is the flip side of it. When Jesus is in the house, sinners will come. And when sinners are in the house, Pharisees are always going to hate it. So, so when this is happening, when, when, when sinners are coming, when sinners are attracted to Jesus, because they always have been, we always have been attracted to Jesus, because he treats us so different from everyone else. And when sinners come in, they're going to be Pharisees. People are going to get uncomfortable. So if you're somebody that when, when the sinners come in gets really uncomfortable, this is time to do some self-evaluation, to look and say, when these people come into our doors, if they're attracted to Jesus... And I'm not attracted to them, maybe that says something more about me than it does about them because when, when sinners come in, Pharisees are definitely going to hate it. And when Pharisees hate it, Jesus is going to have something to say. And that's what we see here with Simon. I, I love it. It's, it almost, uh, you know, we see, you know, Jesus never lacked boldness, but there's definitely a little bit extra in this conversation. You can almost feel the tension. Because we know, because we've read this story before, we know how Simon's really disrespected Jesus. And, and Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And, and I almost, I don't know about you, but I almost feel how, how pointed that is towards Simon. Simon, I have something to say to you. And he goes in when, when, and he goes on and he says, Do you see this woman? I entered the house, you gave me no water. You gave me no kiss. You gave me no oil. He he really goes through and he calls Simon out for the disrespect that he's been shown. When when I came in, you know this is just basic customs, the the base of the culture. You, You didn't give me any water for my feet. You you didn't clean my feet. You didn't give me a kiss. There was no there was no greeting. There was no showing of affection. There was no showing of being welcome. You definitely didn't anoint my head with oil. But this woman on the other side of that, this sinner, this woman who shouldn't be welcome, she hasn't stopped crying. She hasn't stopped wetting my feet with her tears and washing my feet with her hair. She poured this ointment all over my feet. So we evaluate that when, when Pharisees hated Jesus has something to say. And when love is in the house, sins are forgiven. Um, when love is in the house, sins are forgiven. And, and that's what's going to happen here. When when this is something that's happening, something that's being nailed, uh, something that West Seventh is hitting on, it's going to be clicking in the forgiveness department. You know, Jesus was able to take this woman and flip her life. How many people in Columbia is West Seventh going to take and flip their life? When they come in these doors, do they come in and do they feel like they're surrounded by Pharisees? They're looking at them and judging them and saying, Hey, if you only knew who she was, if you only knew who he was, if you only knew what he'd done, you wouldn't welcome them here. Or do they come in and see Jesus everywhere? And see people that love them and honor them and only want them to have this relationship with God. It's not about... Uh, waiting for people to come to us. Um, it's about going to them. You know, we, we can talk all day about this building, and, and there's so much we could go into there. And there's a lot of things that I think West 7th, in the last three years, I've seen changes. I've seen great things. It was, meant, Porter mentioned it a few minutes ago. There's some awesome things that are happening in this building. Definitely more needed. We know that. Definitely always, evaluation is always helpful to say we need to do more. But the truth is, Jesus did a whole lot more ministry in the streets than he did in the synagogues. And so we can sit and all day, and maybe we do that to a fault sometimes. We can talk about what we're doing here, and we can talk about what we do just when we're here. But Jesus did a whole lot more out there. When when he gave us the Great Commission, go into all the world. It's it's truly this image of going. It's not sitting. It's not waiting. It's not sitting here and having this perfect place where people, when they're looking for Jesus, drive by this building and think, I'm going to go in there. It's going out to people. It's how you live your life. So thinking about how you engage people, and I think when we're rethinking how we engage people, we have to rethink how we teach people and what these relationships truly look like because it can't just be sitting and waiting for people to come to us. Uh, The meaning of evangelism is to proclaim the good news and to, to shout out. We we've got something to tell people that is good. And I think we're guilty of kind of doing the opposite. Instead of proclaiming the good news, we like to claim the good news. Like, hey, we've got it. We've got it, and you should come to us. Instead of, hey, I've got it, and I'm going to tell you about it. Instead of proclaiming, we like to claim it. We just like to stay claiming. You know, that's why you think about people going out west, and they're claiming their land. That's kind of what we've done with the gospel we, we've claimed it. It's ours. We know we found the goodness. We found the truth. And this truth has set me free, but, it, but it's going to be a trap for you unless you come in these doors. It's set me free, but, but you're going to have no access to it unless you choose to walk into a church building because we're not out and doing anything. Uh, Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2 and verse 1, uh, Paul talks about us being dead in our trespasses. Remember that that you were dead in your sins and in your trespasses. You were caught in your sins and in your trespasses. See, I think the way we start to rethink the way we're teaching, rethink what we're doing, whether we're just sitting here, whether we're actually going, whether we're doing, whether we're engaging people, it starts with re-looking back at where we've been, at what we've been, Right later on down, and we could do the whole passage of Ephesians 2. We don't have time to this morning, but read it when you have a chance. But you go on down in verse 12, and, and he says this. He says, remember that you were. Remember that you were. And, and then we're going to go into that. But that's an easy thing to forget. When, Jesus said, when Paul says, remember that you were, it's an easy thing to forget where you were. It just is. Yeah, I mean, for all of us, you think about where you come from, the different journeys you've had in life. Like, we're, It's easy to just think about right now. And we definitely can't just sit and dwell on the past and remember what we were, and especially in an unhealthy way, that's not what Paul's getting at. But it's definitely healthy to remember where you were when it comes to your lostness. Because he uses these words right here, he says, remember where you were, you were separate, excluded, Alienated Foreigners, without hope, and without God in the world. And that last one has always rocked me, uh, the without hope and without God. Foreigners, separate, alienated, but without hope and without God in the world. There's not a much worse feeling than losing hope. Having no hope. And that's what Paul describes it as for us. We were without hope. We were foreigners. We had no chance. We had no shot. And if that doesn't change the way we go out and teach God's grace, doesn't change the desire to get out of our seats, to get out of our comfort zone and do something else, then I'm not sure what now, what will. And he says, verse 13, but now. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Um, But now. So remember where you are, remember where you were, but now remember where you are. Remember remember what's been given to you. Remember how your life has changed and then go and do something about it. This means going to unsafe places and doing unsafe things. And that's really scary for us. And maybe harder than ever to go to unsafe places and do unsafe things because we probably live in the safest or the most uh, safe, conscious time ever. I mean, our lives are around safety, right? I mean, they have. I mean, like our whole lives revolve around safety. We live in gated communities, gated schools, gated churches. Like, we revolve around safety. We have alarm systems. (laughs) We have booster seats. We have car seats. We have all these things. And so obviously, as a parent of a four-year-old, a 20-month-old, and a two-month-old, I think safety's great. My, my house, I try to make safe. I don't want them to get hurt. As you saw, Whitley broke her arm a couple weeks ago. I didn't do a very good job, uh, but, but sometimes we fail. But I love the thought of safety, and I'm not saying that safety's wrong, but I know that fear is, and we walk a really thin line when, when we, we're constantly trying to be so safe that we cross over and we're really just afraid. It's not, it's not wrong to be conscious. It's not wrong to be aware. But it is wrong to be afraid. It's wrong to be afraid to go places. It's wrong to be afraid to do things. It's wrong to be afraid to engage people that may be different from you, may have a different background, may in your mind look rougher that's wrong. So we have, it's okay to be safe, but it's definitely wrong to have a fear of engagement. And I think that's what our safety can lead us to if we're not careful. Our whole life is so safe, so gated, so boxed in, that really we don't engage anyone outside of it. I think about riding in my, my pa's truck when I was little, and we were talking about this the other day, you know, it's my red Dodge. Y'all haven't seen it most. It's, it's had a leaky gas tank, and uh, it's getting fixed, but I have an 86 Dodge Ram that was passed on to me by my grandpa, and I can remember when I was four years old, you know, we would go to Walmart, which was Ozone, Tennessee, to Crossville, Tennessee, you know, 30 minutes, and, and it would be my granny, my pa, and one week would be me and my two guy cousins and the next week would be my two sisters. We alternated Saturdays to go to town to go to the Walmart. It was the Walmart, not Walmart, the Walmart. And we'd get popcorn, you know, they had the snack bar. It was good. We had fun. And I just remember, you know, I was four years old. I was Presley size. And we strapped one, little, one, one, one belt across all of us. And I can remember we had a swimming hole like an, a mile down the road. Uh, that we would ride in the back of the truck. No adults. I'm three, four years old, and I'm just riding in the back of the truck. And now I look at that, and I'm thinking, y'all, we're crazy. (laughs) Crazy. Presley would jump out of the back of the truck. I have no doubt that she would jump out of the truck. But maybe she's a little different than me. Safety, good. Fear, wrong. And Jesus taught us that continually. The way he interacted with people. Like I said a minute ago, Jesus did a lot more ministry on the streets than in the synagogues. He wasn't afraid to go to people. He wasn't afraid to engage people. Guys, if we're, if we're just right here, you're not out there. If your life is not intentional, too, you're not going to engage these people. You're not going to build relationships. It's great. I love this thought of, of my church friends are my best friends. That's true for me. My best friends in Columbia, even coming back and having all my friends from growing up, my best friends are here. That's not bad But maybe it is, because we definitely need to make sure that just because our church friends are our best friends doesn't mean that we have no friends, that we're were not engaging people, we're not building relationships. Jesus, when he walked in, when he first met Matthew, you know, he's walking and he sees his tax collector in his tax booth and he says, follow me. He engaged him. He reached out to him. We rethink the way we do things and and really rethink and go back to thinking like Jesus did, because Jesus walked the streets and he talked to people and he built relationships with people. Now, I love this story of Matthew because he, he engages them and he says, follow me. And, and sometimes we think, you know, it's Matthew telling the story, we think that meant follow him for good. And, and maybe Matthew was already there, but I don't think he was because he followed him to his house. Like, followed him to Matthew's house. Like, they went to Matthew's house and they reclined at the table and the things that he said there obviously made Matthew really follow him, made him give everything to him. And I think it's this interaction that he has here. The Pharisees, they're outside and they look and they say, who is this? Why is your master eating with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus says, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what it means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I have come to call the, not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Holy people, holy people are going to ask why. Holy people are going to ask why. Um, and they should ask why. But the flip side of this, and we don't see their why, but I guarantee that all of these tax collectors and sinners that are reclined at the table with Jesus were asking the exact same question. Why, why does this guy care about us? Why? We need to live lives when it comes to really rethinking this thing. Live lives lives where, where people are consistently asking why where people are looking at your life and they see you do something, they see you interact with them, they see the way you love them, the way you care about them. And maybe they're a stranger, maybe they're a sinner, maybe they've got this huge thing in their life and people don't usually treat them this way. And when they look at you and say, why? Use that as the courage to go through the others because the truth is, on the flip side, is that there are going to be people that look at you and say, why? You, know, you, you worked hard for your money. You, your time is valuable. Why would you give time to them? Why would you for sure? I mean, you, you're, you're wealthy. Like, you have worked hard for that wealth. I mean, you worked 60 hours a week since you were 23 years old. Like, why would you do this? It's okay. Let them ask why because of the others that are going to ask why back. And Jesus has something very powerful. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Go and learn what this means. I, I think we've quoted this a lot without listening because he says I desire mercy and not sacrifice but he also says go and learn. I think this is an active learning. It's not something that happens by accident. If you want to learn what this means start practicing it. You know, We think about baptizing people and that, that's something we, we love and it's a beautiful thing and a joy to get to see somebody go into those waters. But baptizing somebody and, and making disciples is not the same thing. Making disciples is honestly really messy. Like, creating disciples is messy. And I think that's where the mercy comes in. We have to be people that are consumed with following after Jesus, with being people that walk into the messes and love showing mercy towards the lost. And that makes us rethink our holiness, um, you know, Jesus here. You know, these are these are guys who were holy. You know, they they were they were people who had it together. When by by earthly standards, they would, they would be holy. And Jesus asked them to kind of ask us to rethink holiness. In Luke eighteen, we have uh, a parable that Jesus tells about the Pharisee and the tax collector. Again, it says um, in verse eleven or verse 10 two men went up into the temple to pray one a Pharisee the other a tax collector the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus god i thank you that i'm not like other men extortioners unjust adulterers or even like this tax collector i fast twice a week i give tithes of all that i have plus the tax collector but the tax collector standing afar off would not even lift his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying god be merciful on me a sinner I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles will be exalted. So you have, you have a great start and a horrible start here. You have the Pharisee who, who starts it off, I thank God that I'm not. And I, mean, that, I mean, it almost makes you cringe when you read it, but maybe we're guilty of misviewing mis- what holiness, what justification, what righteousness with God really is, and this is the way we treat it sometimes. We walk around, and we, have, we live in a really broken world, so we see some really bad things. And if you watch the news, we see them constantly. That, that's what they pipe into our houses. And if you're on social media now, that's what it is. And it's just a lot of negativity, and it's really easy to look at how bad stuff is and think this way. I thank God that I'm not. To start to look at the world and, and to fill in the blank, you know, to, to thank God that I'm not whoever, whatever, wherever, living in this country, living in this way, living in this city, living in this state. And then he goes beyond that and he says all these ways that he's good, but he also says that I'm not like this tax collector. You have to be really careful because you definitely don't get what holiness is in God's eyes if you're looking at somebody you interact with and thanking God that you're not like them. Because you have no... True self-evaluation of where you have come from. No real value of what God has placed on every soul here, and then and then you have the flip side: the guy who starts it in the great way, the tax collector, the one you wouldn't think who who is standing afar off, didn't even feel worthy. And, and again, that, that's that's what we're getting at. You know, need to be a place where. People that would normally stand afar off feel comfortable coming close. Because the reason he was standing afar off was exactly what the interaction showed us. What the Pharisees say about him, you know, I'm glad I'm not like him. That to be the kind of place where people that would normally stand afar off that would not be comfortable look and, and say, these are, these are people that love me. These are people that care on me, about me. It says, have mercy on me, a sinner. He beats his chest. He wails, he's weeping. You, you get the image here when he says he beats his chest. He, he's distraught, he's torn up about it. Because he knows he needs Jesus. Because holiness, we've got God holiness, like true holiness. We've got the holiness that we're striving for. And it starts, I mean, it starts with the recognition of what we're not. Not what we are. And that's why the Pharisee had it so backwards. It starts with recognizing what we are. Holiness, obviously, we know means to be set apart, to be different. In 1 Peter 1.15, don't conform to the evil desire you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he called you to be holy, be holy in all that you do. So there's a change in our life. There is. When we're running towards holiness, there's a change in the way we live our life, and that's what it truly means to be set apart. It means you're different. It means don't be like you once were. And that's all things. That, so we, we lump that in, and sometimes we, we pick our big sins. We pick the things that have controlled us, but it's running away from those other things. that Maybe it's jealousy. Maybe it's pride. Uh, maybe it's humility that you don't have. Maybe it's, maybe it's riches that, that you just seek uncontrollably. Whatever it is, it's being different from the world. The world says that doesn't make sense, and God says it makes perfect sense. So we have to rethink our holiness, uh, and then we have to rethink the person beside you. If you, want to, if you want to change the way you live outside these walls, it has to start with, with how you're treating the people next to you. You're not going to magically start loving the person that's standing beside you getting a cup of coffee if you don't love the person that's sitting beside you while you're singing, sitting in the row in front of you, if you don't have that kind of relationship. In Galatians 6, Jesus talks about this, and he says a couple things that really stick out First in verse one, he says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So that's what this kind of love is. Like think about the person next to you in a different way. And that means when somebody's trapped, you want to restore them. You want to get them back, but you want to do it in the absolute right way. But what it doesn't say too is be afraid to go talk to them. Be afraid to love on them. People. I think for years, we, we've gone two extremes that are both wrong. We've either gone at people and we've kind of beat them up, made them feel worthless because of their sin, worthless because of what they're struggling with, or we've gone the other side and say, I, well, you know, I don't want to make them feel bad and they'd just be really uncomfortable, so, so I don't want to go to them at all because I'm sure that I would do it wrong. And here's one thing I can promise you. If you're doing it in love, you, you won't do it wrong. Follow what Paul said. Go to them with the spirit of gentleness. You know, And I think this, this is kind of an image that he's getting at here when they're caught. Like when you're caught in sin. they kind of picture being caught in a trap. And you don't go and help somebody out of a trap. Say, say my foot is in a bear trap and it's right here. You don't come to me and say, hey, Bo, I'm going to help you out and start ripping on my leg. Like, I will scream. I will hit you. Uh, we will not, it will not end well. What you do is you say, hey, Bo, let's calm down. Let's calm down. Hey, let's really, let's really look at the situation. Let, let's see how things are going to play out. This is not good. This is ugly. You know it. I know it. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to step in. I know you can't do this yourself. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to slowly, and you bear with me, I'm going to slowly and gently fix this with you. Are you with me? And that, that's the way you help somebody get out of a trap. You don't come and rip it out. And you definitely don't come and say, man, that is bad. That is ugly. I can't believe you fell into that trap. And then walk away. And right after that, he says, carry each other's burdens. Carry each other's burdens. And this is, it's hard. But it's something you do when you love somebody. You know, there's love here. I feel it. I hope you feel it that's why there's a mutual love. And that's one of the, you know, people, it's a hard part being in ministry because you move. You know, you move in other jobs. But in ministry, it's one that you kind of know eventually at some point you're, you're going to move again. Uh, and that's hard. But the other side is, is you have people you love. Like you have, you have relationships with people in different places. I love people in Peachtree City. I love people in Columbia. And now I'm going to get to love people in Katy, Texas. And the truth is when I'm thinking about those relationships, like right now, this exit with our teenagers, the people that are having a really hard time, I hurt with them. And I want to walk through that with them, even if I'm 13 hours away. In the same way, hey, this isn't easy for us. Like, th- this is hard. And we have people in our lives that love us and know that while we know it's right and we know it's the move that needs to happen, it's not easy. And so be willing to carry each other's burdens. And that's not something that's easy, but it's definitely something that's worth it because whenever you need to have somebody carry yours, um, you're going to need the help. And you're going to love having, the, having that help. And the last thought... Or, Rethink yourself. Uh, rethink you. It's so easy to point fingers. It is. You know, we, we we think about evaluating and reevaluating, and especially when it comes to church. And like i I've, I've been on the professional side of it, and watched both sides, and it is so easy to point fingers. And it's so easy right here because. You know, we, we are kind of members while we're on staff, and, and you want to change things, and you want good, and, and you get frustrated. It's so easy to sit and say, from your seats, to say, man, if the elders would just fill in the blank. If Randy would just preach, fill in the blank. Man, if the worship was just fill in the blank. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't want different. That you shouldn't look at needs and see something that's maybe missing and say, man, that, that could be better. Uh, that, that could be different. I'm not saying that's wrong because it's absolutely not. It's not wrong to want better. It's not wrong to look and to say, hey, that should be different. We need to make some changes in that area because we could reach more people. But it's for sure wrong to see the need to be different, to point at the need, and then not be different yourself. It starts with rethinking your own life. Are you looking and saying all the things that could be different to all the things that could be better, but then really not doing anything of substance in your own life, just pointing fingers at all the other people that are making things wrong, and if they would just do this, no, it starts with you. It has to start with you choosing to be different. You think back to that prayer, and it's thank God that I'm not. And this is a trap that we've fallen into thinking that it's all about the other people, when maybe it starts with us. And it, it's, it's a lot like what James describes in, in chapter 1. He uh, talks about looking in the mirror, and he says in verse 22, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. This is almost you know, comical to think about to, to look at this passage, because it, we, we do it all the time. We look in the mirror and we evaluate our needs for our own life, And, and maybe you're looking in the mirror and you're patting your belly and you say, "Man, like that's a, that's a little bigger than it was last year. Like some, some things have changed. And, you know, like, like maybe maybe my hair is a little too shaggy or my beard. You know, maybe maybe y'all don't like it. I like it. It's okay. Uh, but may, maybe it needs to be trimmed a little bit. It needs to be shaped up. And we see a need, we look at it, and then we walk away. And we do nothing about it. The rethinking is the start, but actually doing something is the finish. And it starts with you rethinking your story. Uh, may mean rewriting your story like truly looking and rewriting what your story is, then it definitely means changing the author. You know, when it comes to all this, Hebrews, the writer says in verse, chapter 12 and verse 2, says the, looking unto Jesus, focusing on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Sometimes I think that our story is really off, our own life is really off, because we're trying to write the story instead of allowing Jesus to. We're in total control and we don't want want to let Jesus into the situation so it's all about us and not about Him. Um, Rethinking is great. Evaluating is great. Looking at your life, seeing needs. But evaluation is absolutely worthless if there's not action that follows. We evaluate all the time. You get evaluated in your jobs you evaluate every Sunday morning you come here, right? Like You look and you say, man, that worship was great. And that singing was off. Man, there was a big crowd, man. It looked a, little, looked a little thin. We evaluate all the time. It's not a bad thing to evaluate. I think it's a needed thing, a good thing, to constantly be rethinking to make sure you're hitting it right. But what's horrible and what's wrong is when you constantly rethink, constantly evaluate, and then do nothing about it, have no action that follows. Um, maybe you're here this morning and you, you've evaluated your life for a while and you know something's off. Like You you know that there's something missing, but you just haven't been able to pull that trigger to do something about it. Maybe, maybe it's a first step thing where, where you need to put on Christ in baptism. Or maybe it's a, a getting back right and this is the first step of action towards being in the right place with God and changing your story, rewriting your story, whatever that need may be, uh, would you come as we stand and sing?